season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. In 2013, she began working full-time as a software developer. And like any new career, it was exciting and fulfilling. But there was something missing. She couldn't quite put her finger on it. But it didn't really matter. She was moving forward, successful. That's what mattered. She was still climbing, of course. When it's caught you this way, it's hard to just let go. And why would you let go anyway? A handful of V10s and a few V11s kept her satisfied for a while. But by November of 2015, she was fully settled into her career and ready to try hard again. And she did try hard, really hard, but she came up short. And that failure, like it has for so many of us in the past and will do for so many of us in the future, sparked a flame inside of her that she'd forgotten existed. She didn't just want to climb that boulder, La Danse de Balrogs. She needed to climb it. And needing a thing is complicated. The more you need it, the harder it is to come by. A knee injury offered her a way out, an easy reason to avoid failing again. But the boulder was still there, waiting, as it had been for an eternity. And she still needed it. Over the next 18 months and several short trips making the 700-kilometer drive for just a couple of days of attempts, sitting alone under that boulder, watching the sun disappear beneath the horizon, she had seen bits of progress, but it failed to reach her high point from that first trip. And that first trip, when there were no expectations, no pressure, Is it possible to return to that state once you need to do a thing? Once you've sunk time in without the results you hoped for? It's possible, but it's complicated. February 2018. She was going to Ticino, but that meant going right past that boulder. And so she detoured. Just a couple of days. Arriving at the boulder in the morning, she found it wet. But while that would have mattered to her a year earlier, now she was happy to just hang out while the sun came out and dried the boulder. She had realized that the goal was happiness, not just happiness through sending. And she could be perfectly happy sitting here listening to the birds as the day emerged. The boulder dried, she tried the moves, and had a lovely time. And while hiking out, she knew she'd like to have another morning there. And so, Dorothea Carales returned to the boulder in Branson that 26 years earlier, through the vision of Fred Nicole, had opened doors for an entire generation of boulders. She pulled on, 
floating the initial hard moves, impatiently got her foot up to oppose the Gaston, and without realizing what had happened, found herself on top. Doro, welcome to Written in Stone. Hi, nice talking to you. I'm so excited to talk to you about this boulder. Uh, I've watched your video so many times and I've looked at so many photos and other videos of this boulder. And it seems like it was a really important moment in your climbing. So I'm really excited to hear about it. First, before we start, though, I have a question for you. I have to ask, if you had to choose one trait of Fred Nicole's to make your own, would it be the wild hair, the giant forearms, or the super sloth-like climbing style? Um, hmm. I think I already climbed pretty slow as well. <laughs> so I, th I'm, I would choose the forearms because my finger <laughs> strength is not so great. So, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I want the forearms too. They they seem like they're the largest forearms in the world in some photos. Mm -hmm. Can we start by, I would love for you to describe Branson and this particular boulder for me because I've, you know, I've seen lots of videos, but it doesn't seem like it's the most in-style bouldering area these days. So I've had a hard time like really envisioning what the area is like. Can you describe it for me? Mm -hmm, sure. So Branson is a little village, like really tiny village in the Valais, which is uh, in the west of Switzerland. It's a French-speaking part of Switzerland. And also it's kind of on the south side of the Alps. So the weather is a lot nicer than on mm. the north side. It gets more sun and less rain, less storms. And um, the the boulder sits above this small village on the hill and um there's a few other boulders in on, on that hill but it's not so many so basically the area consists of one big boulder and like a few tiny ones around where you can warm mm. up but um and even on the boulder like the main lines are all on one side so um yeah it's what are you seeing boulder. from that side like when you're sitting there do you see the village or is it the village is hidden behind the boulder. Um, it's in a forest. It's like in, in a small forest. So Got you don't it. see the village, but you can walk down like two minutes. And then in there you have a really nice view over the whole uh, valley and down to the village. Um, That's cool. It's cool to be able to sort of tuck yourself in there and, and get lost uh, with a, a view of a village just a few minutes away from you. Yeah, yeah. Like I often like af between tries or after tries, I walk down to that uh, point of view and there's a little bench and you can, yeah, ponder there and mm. enjoy the view. Wow. When you first went there, at least the trip in 2015, were you going there with the intention to try La Danse? Um, yes, because I tried before actually, um, so the first time I, I was at that boulder was in 2007 when my oh, boyf it. boyfriend uh, did it. But back then I was tr I was climbing like my first V8, V9. So mm. uh, like there was like way, like I, w I wasn't even dreaming about trying this problem. Like it was way above. And then 2011 and 12, I lived in Switzerland for six months. I did an internship in the north of Switzerland. 
and the internship wasn't that great. So my only like high points of the view uh, of the week were like driving to Ticino or to the valet on the weekends. Um, and that's when I started trying, like I, back then it, yeah, it was too hard. I did some of the crux moves, but I don't think I did all of them. Um, but I always like had it in the back of my mind. And so in 2015, I, yeah, I don't remember. I think I, yeah, I had a, like just an opening for a three week trip and went, went to the valet and, and thought, yeah, maybe I can try it. And I, I didn't have the expectation to actually send, but I was yeah, really motivated to try and I figured out my methods and in the end of the trip I like almost sent it I fell after the crux because my my foot slipped and yeah. I came home like so frustrated like it's incredibly frustrated because I felt so close and then yeah my foot slipped yeah in in the video when your foot slips and you come off I, I'm, I think that's the same attempt that's in the video correct mm-hmm. yeah yeah you you look disappointed, but not like you're not freaking out. You're not angry. Uh, is that your normal style of climbing? Is it, you know, do you get angry when you climb or is it more just disappointment mm. over what just happened? Rarely while climbing. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not screaming or stuff like what I, yeah. But I like when I like after that day and then you have to the long drive home, you have a lot of right. time to think about it and then. Oh yeah, you. Then it it's it was sure it, like that was like end of November and it's December January are usually too cold and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to me that your your like time spent with that boulder is really similar to Fred's. Um, when I was when I was doing the research, uh, there are several interviews where he talks about going to that boulder. Um, early on in his climbing and and sort of seeing it as futuristic and first he does the the v89 um stand start to something on the boulder i can't remember the name of it uh Mm -hmm. and then later he does the v11 sit start and then years later he comes back for la dance so it's interesting that your your like journey with that boulder is really similar yeah yeah that's cool yeah i think i I don't remember when I heard the first time of that boulder, but I mean, yeah, people were always talking about it because it's such a classic and yeah, kind of like infamous. Yeah. When you first tried it, you were working full-time as a software developer and you wrote on your blog that you had lost some of the the passion for climbing. Um, What do you think it was about not sending this boulder that reignited that for you? Mm, maybe just because the whole process on that trip was so fun before like from like I really like the process of figuring out moves the problem solving understanding the body positions and um, then maybe after some days you get really that feeling oh wow I can actually do it and yeah and then even do some tries and then excited then it's exciting and yeah then I got so close but still failed and uh yeah, maybe I realized that I really, really enjoy that process. Yeah, I imagine, you know, taking that away from that trip where it was like I made lots of progress, I almost did the thing, and then you come back and for several short trips, you can't quite get to your high point again. 
Um, I've been in that situation. I know a lot of people listening have been in similar situations and that's hard. Did you ever consider just not doing the boulder? Mm, I can't really remember. I think it, yeah, it was kind of frustrating. I mean, looking back, I think I was just not back in shape after my knee surgery because in Mm -hmm. 2016 I had a big knee surgery and um, yeah, I was just, yeah, not fully back in shape. And, but at the time I like, I think it was a bit impatient, impatient because sure. Yeah. Even when, like, I mean, when the knee surgery happened, like the first thing which came to mind was the tr- a trip to, to that boulder because I had planned to go there in February or March. And then I was like, I fell in the gym, my knee crunched and I was like, okay, that's not going to happen. Oh, um, why is it always the gym? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I it's, don't think I, I, I really considered giving up. I'm kind of stubborn. Maybe like I don't, I take a break for some months or for a year or yeah. so, but in general, I think I, I, yeah, I'm stubborn enough to not give up. I think that's a really good trait to have, especially as a boulder. Um, you know, it's when you're a sport climber, it's, I think it's easier to see progress because you can do another move or get another high point. That's a little tougher on a boulder where the moves are just harder and there are fewer of them. So that, that stubbornness and, and also the willingness to, to recognize that the process of figuring it out and the process of doing all of this uh, and failing is a real part of the fun and the enjoyment. Um, I think yeah. those are necessary qualities as a boulder. Yeah, for sure. Though in, in 2017, when I went back and, and was still not in, in a good shape, it was kind of frustrating, I think, because every trip, I think I wanted two or three, like five days trip, five day trip. And every trip, I mean, I took, it took like, a lot of tries to even just do the moves again. And yeah. then it, it just felt like, I mean, it was too hard at, at this trip and it felt so hard. And um, yeah, that was kind of frustrating because I, like, yeah, I tried, trained a lot before to, after the injury, get to back to the level, but it just takes time. Yeah. And it's a frustrating process, even when the boulder is, you know, near your home and you can try it over and over. I imagine it's got to be an even more frustrating process when it's 700 kilometers away and you can only get away for really short trips. Yeah, that felt kind of stressful because back then I didn't have so many, um, so much, so many holidays or days off. And so you're always checking the weather. Hmm, Should I take some days off now or maybe next week is better? And Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's makes it a bit stressful. Yeah. I want to know a little bit about the, the boulder itself, this climb itself. Um, are the holds like, is it so popular that people try it a lot and the holds have gotten polished and slippery? Um, are the holds sharp? Are they friendly? Like, tell me a little bit about the, the moves and the holds and what the boulder feels like when you're climbing on it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really special rock type. Actually, I don't know what it's called. I think it's some kind of granite or gneiss, but I don't know exactly, but it doesn't have a lot of friction. I like barely any friction. Mm. And if it's too humid, like the holes get like brownish quick or like 
you meet quick. And so it's kind of tricky to have good conditions because if it's too cold, it gets the holes get glassy and, and slippery. But if it's too warm, like they're slippery as well. And it is a little bit polished, but just because, yeah, people have been climbing on that boulder for for so long. So um, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. And it's it's pretty powerful, I would say. Like you have um, like the second move. You have like a pretty slippery pinch, and you have to do a like a, a move to a side pull. Then you match there, and then the fourth move is into a kind of big move for me into like a slopey Gaston, and that from there you have to get your foot up, which felt super powerful for me. Mm. And then it gets easier. Like it's still, yeah, you can fall. I mean, I did, but. Um, yeah, these were the two moves which I struggled the most with, the second one and the fourth one, or getting my yeah. foot up after the fourth one. I imagine that that condition part of it makes it even harder to to have it as a project that's far from your house and you only have limited windows that you have to choose ahead of time. Um, what was it about this boulder in particular that sort of kept you watching the weather and and trying to decide when to when to take your vacations um yeah probably just because i got so close in 2015 and then i'm stubborn enough that i know i can do it i just yeah need the right weather and the right shape and uh, yeah <laughs> were you were you training specifically for this boulder between trips or were you just sort of um, climbing and getting back into shape in general. Yes and no. Like I've I haven't really tried like with the training plan or like really yeah, I'm not good with that, but I tried to like um set up uh replicas or like make up replicas at a spray wall where where I would go mm -hmm. to and um yeah, just like set some shoulder moves, set some boulders with like a similar length and uh similar climbing style. In in 2018, you said you went you went back on a solo trip, and the the weather didn't look great. Um, but you you indicate in your blog you wrote that your motivations had sort of gone through a fundamental change, and I think this is a tough corner for a lot of climbers to turn. Um, but I do think it's a really valuable one. So I'm curious, um, what was that? change like how did you decide it was more about happiness than happiness through sending um well it wasn't as a decision unfortunately my dad died in summer 2017 mm. which was really hard for me and um but climbing like i started like getting more into climbing in maybe fall or winter 2017 and it really helped me get through the time and i and i really yeah helped me find my my joy back or my happiness back and that and yeah also with it i kind of had like the trip uh, like that problem in my mind like in in, in spring uh, or like in winter 2018 and so that helped me like go to the gym be motivated try hard mm. and like it yeah helped me through the time like just pushing forward and really enjoying happiness again yeah, I'm sorry that it was under those circumstances. Um, I've had a, a similar circumstance with my grandfather. Um, he, you know, his, his passing 
really showed me that climbing was was a thing I could lean on uh, as a, a constant in my life and and something that I could always find joy in. So I totally get that. And I think that's one of the most important parts of this thing that we do that maybe we don't recognize when we're young and really just trying to challenge ourselves. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah, like a constant in, in your life, which usually gives you happiness. Yeah. As climbers, whether for, you know, good or bad, uh, our identity is often tied to our ability to climb rocks. Um, you know, I think especially when we're younger, uh, before we really have to confront climbing as this this thing that can help us through hard times. And I've found for me personally that there are a few roots and boulders that represent something bigger than just climbing. You know, they're they're a small but but really important part of my identity now, whether I've sent the boulder or not. Um, and I'm curious if this boulder was sort of in that category for you. You've you've made it sound really important to you in your blog. Yeah, I mean, back then, for sure, when I when I did it, I was super happy, and I'm I'm still proud of it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I guess I'm really proud of it that I stuck with the process and kept going back and uh, went through some frustration, but in the end. Um, yeah, had a beautiful ending and uh, really spent a really nice last day there. And yeah. While I was researching all of these ascents, you know, I started to see uh, all of these roots and boulders that I'm talking about this season as, as gifts to the next generation, you know, that the climbers from the nineties were, were gifting us. And I think this boulder in, in particular is really special because it's got the first eight B and the first eight B plus Raja on it. And they share a few holds and you can try a lot of the moves from the ground, uh, especially on Ladance. you can pull on almost anywhere. And I think that's a really interesting sort of entry point for people to see where Fred was at in the mid nineties and where bouldering was at. And it, it lets the next generation have more opportunities to sort of move through the grades faster. Um, and I think that's one of the, for me, one of the biggest takeaways of the importance of all of these climbers from the 90s. Or they're, they're giving us a way to improve faster. And uh, what do you think Fred means to climbing now or these ascents that, that Fred did back in the 90s? What do they mean and what is, what's Fred's legacy, do you think? Oh, I mean, there's a big legacy all over the world, which problem <laughs> of problems he put up. I mean, you go anywhere and there's old Fred problems. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah, they were basically Fred and other climbers of the generation basically d developing a new sport with bouldering or also with like hard spot climbing because yeah, especially with bouldering, I, I flicked off some... Uh, through some of um, some climbing magazines of the '90s, which yeah. I still have from my dad, and in the in the early '90s, like bouldering seems not to be seem not to be a thing in the in the mm -hmm. climbing magazines. Like in, from mid '90s to to end '90s, then it got more popular, also in the media. But I think in the beginning of the '90s, there were just like a few guys. Of all over the world who were yeah pushing their limits and thereby the limits of the sport and all in their own way. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the things I've been really fascinated by doing all this research is that, you know, we really want to say this person did the first of this, you know, and then later down the road, people debate the grade and then it, you know, it comes up that someone else had done something that's just as hard somewhere else but hadn't reported it. And we end up arguing about what was the first, you know. But really what's happening is there there are a group of people, they they might be together, they might be all over the world spread out, but they they know what each other are doing, they hear about each other's climbing, and they're motivating each other to try harder and harder things. And I think that's so important and and such an under valued aspect of of what these folks were doing back in the 90s and and all the time yeah for sure and i mean their circumstances were totally different like there were yeah. barely crash beds or only like super small <sighs> right. ones and no gyms and yeah just a yeah even if you just look at the of the climbing style back then it was especially fred's was super controlled super static mm -hmm. because yeah i mean you couldn't really fall on on a lot of the moves, I guess. Yeah, it's so interesting to look at old videos of Fred. Like there, there's a video of him repeating both LaDance and Raja um, from an old Udo Newman film. And he's just he sits on a towel and he mm -hmm. you know pulls onto the wall and there are no crash pads anywhere to be seen. And I think that's that's probably jarring for younger climbers who are used to you know, going up to a boulder and basically having a gym floor there for them to, to fall on. Yeah, for sure. It's totally different, I guess. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, Fred was this like interesting example of a, a superstar who wasn't really trying to be a superstar. You know, uh, I think we, the, the media anyway, latched on to Fred and, and he seemed like he was just going out and doing his thing and didn't didn't care whether anyone else noticed, but it was hard not to notice the things that he was doing. And I, I think that's such a great example um, for the boulders to come, you know, that he was the person who the media latched onto to sort of popularize that first wave of bouldering. Yeah, and I think it seems like that he kept doing that just like, doing his yeah. things, putting up problems everywhere and not caring so much about like whatever other people are doing or, yeah. Yeah, and still seems to be doing that. Yeah, for sure. I think he still enjoys it a lot. Yeah. When Did you ever run into Fred in your travels and in your climbing? Uh, not in my travels. I met him a couple times at like, uh, there's like, there used to be a cleanup event in Fontainebleau. Mm. and we were both involved in it so then we yeah he's like that's a, that's another thing i think is really important to to mention like the the superstars you know fred's one of the biggest superstars in climbing and he he just continues to care about the environment and you know be involved in cleanup days and and things like that so he just continues to set a great example oh yeah for sure i think yeah i mean with some people or like yeah i think i never heard a bad story about him or some gossip he just yeah seems really laid back and chill and just does his thing 
Yeah. I, I do remember a story uh, years ago. I remember when it was reported in the magazines that he was trying the Dominator in Yosemite mm-hmm. and that he had uh, his feet cut when he did the crux move and he sort of tapped Mary. Mary was spotting him and he tapped her. And Ron Kalk was there and Ron Kalk was like, I don't, I don't know if that counts. You know, you, you touched your spotter. And Fred was just like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. I, I'm going to count it. And he okay. just moved on. I okay. think that's fantastic. Hmm. Just, you know, doing his own thing. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or anything. Yeah, yeah. Do you, were you ever interested? I'm curious because, uh, you know, I definitely grew up as a climber, like seeking out the the roots and the boulders that my heroes had done. You know, first it was like local heroes. And then it was uh, on my first trip to Waco, I really want to go do some Fred boulders, you know. Um, did you ever seek out things like that? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, if you go to a new area, I th- I definitely prefer or like I'm definitely interested in trying the classics. I mean, usually they are a classic for a reason because <laughs> yeah. A, they're f- like old and usually that's, yeah, the good lines or the most famous boulders. But I think once I'm like, I started trying, I'm more interested in like the quality of the moves. It's like, is it yeah. interesting body positions? If, is it a nice place to be? Um, yeah, then it, that kind of, it's, it's mostly like the initial interest, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, one of the things that makes this series important to me is that these historic climbs from the 90s are still important to two climbers, um, not just the community as a whole, but but two individuals. So, you know, having, you know, LaDance and Duell be important to you, I think it's for me, it's really exciting to to hear about those moments and those experiences um, because it's, I think that's one of the coolest things about climbing is that they can take, they can create this thing, you know, or, or work with nature to, to make it up a boulder. And then it's important to someone uh, decades later, um, you know, just like, just like they, 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 they take on a greater meaning, you know, just like they did for Fred, these, these boulders take on a, a greater meaning for you and I. Um, and I think that's really special. So mm-hmm. thanks for taking the time to, to revisit these ascents with me and for, you know, sharing with all of us how much they mean to you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Thanks. It was fun. All right. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't, including the video of Doro sending La Dance. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. We'll be right back.
donors. What's happening? You know, I don't think there are enough stories out there of the commitment that climbing hard things, and I'm and I mean hard in the relative sense, requires, especially when you're working full time and the thing you want to climb is a long distance away. It's a real commitment to do that. And I appreciate Doro sharing this, this, this story, reliving this with me because it's inspiring, uh, especially as somebody who now has very limited time. It's inspiring to see and hear the commitment that people put into this thing. So thanks, Doro. It has been a busy week around here. Obviously, it's the week before Christmas, so lots of shipping early in the week. Trying to climb a little. I'm going climbing tomorrow, actually, so this feels like a weekend. I keep feeling like I'm late on this because tomorrow feels like a weekend, um, but it's not. I'm on time. I've also been working on an incredibly challenging episode uh, that's going to be a little different. Uh, It sort of has to be um, just because of the nature of this ascent, but that's going to come beginning of February. One of the biggest controversies of the 90s, and I started it uh, thinking I was on one side and I've completely flipped sides. Um, And it's actually caused me to sort of flip sides on another episode coming down the line. So super interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, I promised you guys, there are a couple things I've promised you. Number one, that you get a bonus episode next week. And it's very cool. Uh, It it spun out of control. It was just going to be a thank you quick episode. Um, I was going to take the week off, but it's spun out of control now. It's an hour and a half long episode uh, with this whole gift that is meant to incite nostalgia for all of you. So that will be coming next Monday, Christmas Day. Be on the lookout. Number two, I said maybe I would have something ready for you today, and I do indeed, and that is that I've set up a Patreon for the Secret Stoners Club. Now, it's entirely free to join. We do have one paid tier if you want to support the show, but not necessary at all to join in the conversation. Um, So anybody who wants to go there, come in and do it. I would love to get your feedback. I would love to hear from you on what you want to hear next Uh, next season and who you want to hear about. And eventually, maybe there will be some bonus episodes over there. In fact, I'm 100% sure there will be bonus episodes over there. I can't help myself. Um, And some of those will be free to everybody. Some of those will go to the paying um, supporters over there. Uh, So, If you want to support, that would be great, lovely. We would love it. Right now, though, you don't get anything for that support except for my undying gratitude. Because like I've said a hundred times in here, this thing takes a lot of hours. And I'm, I'm mostly doing it out of love, as are 
Emily and Riley. Um, so any support is fantastic and would help ensure that there is a season two. But anyway, I've got a few things posted over there already. It's patreon.com slash secret stoners club, all one word. So please go join, um, answer the poll over there. Let me know if you have questions about this season and we will grow that Patreon as we're able to, as I'm able to put new things out there between season episodes. I've got so many ideas, you guys. I, I, like I said, I can't help myself. I'm going to shut up now because you're going to listen to me and my guest next week on Monday talk for an hour and a half. And I've been talking to you all week this week, and it's been a lot of fun. Hope to see you over at the Patreon, and I'll see you next week right back here. Happy holidays, y'all.